We've recently been in Matthew chapter 24 and then Matthew chapter 25, and primarily Jesus is speaking about the end times and what's going to happen and how we're supposed to respond to it. Uh, now, there's some interesting things as we uh, look later on into Matthew and the Passover and some other stuff that comes up, um, and I just was praying and talking to some leadership, and I decided to take a two-week break and teach the Levitical feasts. Uh, so we'll be in uh, Leviticus chapter 23 primarily today. A lot of information today, and I'll, I'll just warn you ahead of time, especially if you're, this is your first time here, uh, this is a totally different style of teaching than what you're used to coming from me. This is a very academic style of teaching, okay? So it's going to take engaging your minds and trying to focus as best as you can, but I promise you, uh, if you haven't studied the feast before and this is the first time, you're going to be like, oh my gosh, God is so awesome. Like, the, the word is so cool how we put all these things together strategically, so it it is very heady, but it's important, and I'll get to really the heart behind why I really uh, wanted to talk about these things. It's really to prepare you guys for some stuff that's coming up, whether it's this year or a thousand years from now, uh, as we get into Rosh Hashanah and some of that stuff. Uh, now, before I pray real quick, well, there's a two-week series. The first, uh, the first week, this, this week, we'll focus on the spring feast, which is four, uh, and then we'll go through the last three fall feasts next week. You'll understand as I give you some more information, uh, but before I go any further, let's pray. Lord, we lift up this time to you, and we just thank you for your word and how powerful it is, Lord, and how, how your plan just unfolds and comes together, God. And I pray that you would wow us by your word, that we would see uh, <laughs> the perfect puzzle that you're putting together and, and how you fulfilled so much of this in how you're going to fulfill a, a lot more. Lord, so give us the ability to retain information, enlighten the eyes of our understanding, give us the spirit of, of wisdom and revelation. Speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I got a bunch of slides for you. It's different than normal. Um, so you can do the first one if it comes up. There we go. Okay. The feasts of the Lord. These are really the Lord's feast. He instituted these seven feasts. Now, there's many feasts and festivals and celebrations uh, like Hanukkah and, uh, and different ones that the Jews celebrate. But these are the feasts that God instituted from the very beginning. The seven feasts, uh, which we'll get into in a moment. And these feasts, or uh, in other words, they're festivals, okay? Or convocations, which is assemblies, that people would come together to celebrate these specific feast in the hebrew the feasts literally are referred to as an appointed time these were appointed times they were rehearsals see each and every year at the same time each and every year they would celebrate these feasts and when you look at the culture and tradition and some of the things that they did during this feast it's like jesus everywhere even to this day the hebrews celebrate these things and jesus is all over it now, God established these as appointed times, so they would celebrate them over and over again at the appointed times. And through the traditions, they were basically rehearsing these feasts. And the Lord instituted these in such a way so that when Messiah came, the Hebrews would recognize Jesus as their Messiah. Sadly, we know many missed it. I'll show you where many of them missed it. But this was so important to the Lord. In fact, he made it mandatory for the people to come up to the majority of these feasts. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 16, in Deuteronomy chapter 16, I encourage you to take notes on this one. 
Uh, it's a ton of information to remember. If you have questions after service, feel free uh, and come and talk to me about it. Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 16. It says, three times a year, all your males should, shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Tabernacles. So it was mandatory for the males to come up to celebrate these feasts. But what you see is that I mentioned three feasts. Now, these feasts fall within the same time frame of each other. He says you have to come up to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Well, Passover marks the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The next day is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that third day is the Feast of First Fruits. Then they would come up to the Feast of Weeks, 50 days later, which is technically the Feast of Pentecost. It's referred to as the Feast of Weeks because it's seven weeks after First Fruits plus a day. Then during the Feast of Tabernacles, 15 days before the Feast of Tabernacles, was Rosh Hashanah, their new year, which we'll really get into next week. And then 10 days later, you had the Day of Atonement. Then five days after that, the 15th day of Tishri, then you had the Feast of Tabernacles. The point is, the Lord had made it mandatory for them to come up to these feasts. And when a person came up to one, they typically celebrated the other feasts that fell within this same time frame, which you'll understand as we talk about the dates uh, and when these things started, okay? So, all the feasts are agricultural in context. They either have to do with the wheat or grain or barley, a certain harvest time period. Uh, it, it also has to do with the rainy seasons that were established. Even the culture, God used the culture, he used the agriculture, he used the environment, he used everything to get the Jews' attention so that they would see the Messiah. And we'll see him as we get into it. Another thing that's important before we actually get into the feasts is that the Hebrews have a different calendar. Uh, in fact, the Jews have, have, have two calendars, okay? You have a civil calendar and you have a biblical calendar. We see the civil calendar from the very first book of the Bible, Genesis 1, all the way to Exodus chapter 11, okay? This is the civil calendar. Now, the civil calendar, Tishri, which is around September, October, depending on the year, Tishri was the first month of the year. It'd be like our January. Okay, It'd be like uh, September, October was our January. Okay, that was the first month of the year. But God, that was the civil calendar. God made literally a new calendar. He established them under a new calendar at Passover. If you look at Exodus chapter 12, this is the biblical calendar. Exodus chapter 12, Verse 1, this is just before the Exodus. This, uh, this is right at the Feast of Passover, the very first piece of Feast of Passover. It says in Exodus chapter 12, verse 1, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of the months. It shall be the first month to you. Now Nisan was the seventh month. God is saying, now this month, he's speaking of Nisan, is going to be your first month. This is what it, what, what it would be like. If all of a sudden God said, September 1st is now your first month. 
It would be like our, our, uh, the, the first month of the year switched. God literally switched it up. Tishri used to be the first month of the year. Now Nisan is the first month of the year. This is important to understand because you'll see throughout the Bible, sometimes they're using the civil calendar, sometimes they're using the biblical calendar. They might say like, this prophecy came in the first month and the second day, and, the, well, like, and you'll see expressions like that to date things. Sometimes they're referring to the civil calendar, sometimes they're referring to the biblical calendar. Now the reason that this is important is because it represents two births. It represents two births. Civil calendar represents the natural birth. The biblical calendar represents the spiritual birth. This was God really establishing Judaism for the first time, which we'll get into in a second. And this new birth thing uh, is something that you're probably familiar with. Uh, you know how we have a physical birth, right? We were all born at some point, but we also have a spiritual birth. John 3 tells us we must be born again. And this is the symbolism here. Civil birth represents my physical birth. I was born October 21st, 1985. Uh, but the, the biblical calendar, that represents my spiritual birth. When I was reborn, and that was August 31st, 2011. The, the point is, this is what God was doing. He was doing something new. He was establishing a rebirth of the nation. Now as well, something to note to keep us from getting too confused. They have a lunar calendar. We have a solar calendar. A lunar calendar, as you would assume, um, the calendar is based on the rotation of the moon around the earth. Okay, so the moon rotates around the earth uh, average 29.5 days. Okay, so, so this is basically what they do in their calendar. Certain months have 29 days. Certain months have 30 days. Okay, certain months have 29. Certain have 30. So when you add the months up, it only equates to 354 days. How many days are in a year? 365. So they're 11 days off, right? So this is what they would do. Every three years or so, they would add a whole nother month. It's called Adar 2. So most years, they had 12 months in a year. Every third year, they would have 13 months. Why? Because all these festivals and feasts went around the harvest seasons. So if they're off for 11 days over and over and over again, like soon summer's going to be winter and they're going to be all off and the rainy seasons are going to be all off. So we have a solar calendar and you'll be able to relate to that. We have 365 days a year, right? The earth's rotation around the sun. But we know every fourth year we get a what? A leap year, right? Where we add one day. The difference, they would add a whole month because they were so far off. Okay, this is important to understand as we get into some of these feasts. But we also have to know that the Jewish day was different. Not only was the years, the years different, the months different, but the days were different. And they bring it back to Genesis chapter 1. From the beginning, I'll show you. Um, there's a, there's a slide for it. There's a bunch of different verses for this. Uh, they all pretty much say the same thing. But if you look at Genesis chapter 1, the Jewish day got established from the beginning. In verse 5, it says, So the evening and the morning were the first day. Not the morning and the evening. The evening and the morning. Okay? So a Jewish day, it starts at nighttime. It starts when the sun goes down approximately, if you averaged it, it's not about the time, it's about the event, okay? So it'd be like 6 p.m. For example, we start our day at at 12 a.m. and it goes to 11.59 p.m., right? That's right, right? So for the Jews, it would start around, let's say, 6 p.m. and then it would end at 5.59 p.m. the next day because God said, 
evening, then morning. Not morning, even evening, then morning, which is important when we look at some of these feasts. They literally start at nighttime and will continue on for a certain amount of days depending on what the actual feast is. So their days were different as well. Before we get into the feast, they had two rainy seasons, okay? They had two rainy seasons. <clears throat> and we see this mentioned throughout Scripture, but it's also historical and even current. If you look at Hosea chapter 6, in Hosea chapter 6, <clears throat> Hosea chapter 6, verse 3. He says, let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rains of the earth. So you had two rainy seasons, the latter rain and the former rain. The former rain happened around Passover. That would be around March or April, okay? So the former rain was called more, M-O-R-E-H. And the word means teacher, which will come up in a second. And then you had the latter rain, which is Zedaka. It starts with a T. It should be up there. It's on one of these. Anyways, the latter rainy season would usually happen just after the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, so these rainy seasons are important because the feasts revolve around these rainy seasons. But there's something more spiritual that's happening here. We see throughout the Bible, if you look at Joel chapter 2, verses 23 to 28, I think it even goes further than that. If you want to write that down, we see that these rainy seasons spiritually were a symbolism of the pouring out of God's Spirit. Okay, these rainy seasons were symbolism of God pouring out his spirit. This coincides with the Lord's first and second coming. Okay, Moray, the former season that happens at, at, at Passover, right around Passover. And that uh, is is right when the spring feasts start. Okay, Jesus came, says, let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord His coming forth. Is like the rain, like the former and latter rains of the earth. The prophets knew that there was something to the Lord coming back in these rainy seasons. Okay? So, the Lord, He came back in His first coming, and what happened? There was a great pouring out at Pentecost of God's Spirit, right? We see that great pouring out. We'll talk about it when we talk about Pentecost. So, we see likely in His second coming, there's going to be another great pouring out of God's Spirit. Now, with these rainy seasons, we're going to see, especially this first week, that Jesus already has fulfilled all the spring feasts. Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, and Pentecost. He's already fulfilled those. So, the belief is, he's going to come to fulfill the other ones. And we'll look at uh, Rosh Hashanah, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles, and see throughout Scripture where that lines up specifically with his second comings, two comings. He came as the suffering servant the first time. He will come as the conquering king. Now let's look real quick about why we should study these, and then we'll get into Passover. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, certain translations it says, Study to show yourself approved unto God. 
there's this call that we as children of God are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. We're called to be diligent students of his word. That doesn't mean just coming to a Sunday service. It means looking into the, some of this stuff on our own. He's called us each to be students of his word. We also see in Hebrews chapter five, Hebrews chapter five, verse 12. He says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. For he is a babe, but solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. We see that there's got to be a balance. Yes, we need to know the milk and the foundations of the faith, but the Bible isn't all milk. There's a lot of meat. He says, hey, there's a time that every believer has to come to where they're ready to start eating solid food. We start as babies in the faith, and then we move on. We start eating food, right? Uh, And that's what he's referring to, the meat of the word of God. This is one of those really meaty uh, (laughs) teachings that we're going to go through. A lot of depth, in-depth symbolism and things like that. But really the heart behind why I chose to teach this in these next two weeks is because we've been talking about the end times. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 6, we talked about this a few weeks ago. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilences, earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Jesus is saying, open your eyes. Okay, when you see wars and rumors of wars, when you see more earthquakes, when you see more natural disasters, when you see pestilence and plagues and famines and all these things continuing to happen more rapidly and more rapidly. He says it's the beginning of sorrows or literally the beginning of birth pains right? Birth pains, what do we know? When a woman experiences birth pains and those contractions happen at a shorter and shorter time period, what do we know is going to happen? Baby's coming, right? This is what Jesus is liking the end times to. He says, hey, you guys better open your eyes. When you see more and more of this stuff happening, that means I'm coming back soon. So we look at uh, Korea and Iran and the wars and rumors of wars and the earthquakes and the hurricanes and all these different things that are happening. I'm not saying Jesus is coming back tomorrow, but he says when this stuff happens, don't be a fool. Open your eyes. You better be expecting me when these things happen. And that's what we've been talking about the last few weeks. Now, getting into the feast, as I mentioned, The spring feasts have already been fulfilled. And that's what we'll talk about this week. I'll show you, I'll prove you that they already have been fulfilled. And not even just fulfilled on the days that they were actually instituted. The days that they were being celebrated. The first feast is Passover. The first feast is Passover. Every other feast builds off this. This was the first feast that God instituted in Exodus chapter 12. In Exodus chapter 12, we talked about how he switched up the months. And the seventh month became the first month. That's the month of Nisan. Now, if you look at verse 3 of Exodus chapter 12, it says, Speak to all the children, all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for his household. Okay, so the tenth day of Nisan, they would take this lamb, this unblemished lamb into the house. 
Okay, it says in verse 4, And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take the, some of the blood and put it on the doorpost and on the lintel of the house where they eat it. Okay, so the 14th day of Nisan, that's the first time God instituted the Passover. It's always been the 14th day of Nisan ever since, even to this day. Now, basically what had happened was this was the final plague that God was going to bestow on Israel. And what the people had to do is sacrifice this lamb that they just spent these four days with. So they're getting attached to the thing. Just imagine the kids. They have to kill this lamb. And then they have to put blood on their doorpost. And what happened after that? The people that had the blood on the doorpost, the angel of death passed over. That's why it's called the Passover lamb. But those that didn't have the blood, all their firstborns, whether it was uh, people or beast or whatever, they all died. And this was the final plague that God had again bestowed on Egypt. So the Passover lamb, literally the blood of the lamb, the angel of death would pass over them. They were saved by the blood of the lamb. Jesus, right when he comes on the scene, in his ministry anyways, in John chapter 1 verse 29, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb of God. He's telling us who this person is. He is the Lamb of God. He's come to take away the sins of the world. In John chapter 18, some of the stuff I'm just going to give you because uh, for time's sake. John chapter 18 verse 28, we see that it was on Passover that the Lord was crucified. Okay? It was on Passover that the Lord was crucified. We see in Mark chapter 15, verse 33, that Jesus died the ninth hour, which was presumably, presumably about uh, 3 p.m. Now, many people suggest that Jesus died at the same time period that the Passover lambs were being sacrificed on Passover. There's different views about that. Others believe that he was uh, this other type of sacrifice that was referred to as a perpetual lamb. See, during that time, they were sacrificing two lambs a day every day. Regardless, Jesus communicates to us through Paul. Paul makes this connection in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. First Corinthians five, seven, it says, therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. We'll get into that in a little bit. Since you truly are unleavened for indeed Christ, our Passover was sacrificed for us. So because we're covered with the blood of the lamb, death passes over us. Though we, though we will die, we shall live Passover lamb the picture of our salvation just as the people were saved because of the blood of the lamb so too are we saved because of the blood of the lamb jesus just happened to die on the very time period that they were celebrating this holiday he is the passover lamb he fulfills passover the next feast is the feast of unleavened bread the feast of unleavened bread This feast was celebrated the day after Passover for seven days. 
Now, what this represented was the Israelites going out quickly from Egypt. If you remember, God told them, I don't want you to put any leaven in your bread or or yeast in your bread. You don't have time, in other words, to wait for the bread to rise. You need to get out of Egypt and get out of of there quick. Though Pharaoh said, you you can uh, take the people and go worship me in the wilderness. We know that Pharaoh is going to come back after the people. So. We see the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The people had to get rid of all the leaven. They had to eat unleavened bread or matzah bread for seven days. Now, leaven throughout the Bible, it's a picture of sin and death. Okay, Leaven throughout the Bible is a picture of sin and death. Ultimately, God was saying it wasn't so much about the leaven. It was the spiritual application of God was saying, leave your leaven behind. Leave your sin behind. We're moving in a new direction. We're moving in a direction of repentance. Leave the leaven in Egypt. So, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was the 15th day of Nisan. 14th day of Nisan Passover. Um, Feast of Unleavened Bread was the 15th day of Nisan. Now, I know many of you were here when Isaac did his teaching on the Passover. So some of this stuff is going to ring a bell. And we can't get into detail with all of this for time's sake because we only got two weeks. Uh, but the Seder meal, which was the Passover meal. Has anyone in here ever been to a Seder meal? Like a traditional Hebrew Seder meal? Okay, I'm telling you, at some point in your life... Go to one, okay? Go to one. Specifically, uh, if it's a Messianic Jew that's hosting it, it is phenomenal. Literally, the Seder meal, it's Jesus everywhere. You see Jesus, all of the things that they do is about Jesus. Now, this is one of the significant things that they do because they're only allowed to eat unleavened bread. They have three pieces of matzah that they keep together. And the host of this teaching, the Seder meal, uh, he has the matzah, and this is what they do. Three pieces of matzo, one stacked on top of the other. They take the middle piece out and they break it in half. It's referred to as the afikomen. They take this broken piece of bread, they wrap it in a white cloth, and they hide it for the rest of the Seder meal. The Jews don't know why they do this. They don't even know what the bread means. Some of them think, they can't even agree on this. Some of them think it's it represents Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs. Others believe that it represents the priests, the prophets, and the kings. But as Christians, what do we know? Unleaven, leaven's a picture of sin. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are the only ones that have never sinned. It represents the Trinity. And look at that middle piece. That piece represents Jesus. He was broken. He was wiped, right, wrapped in a white cloth and he was buried. Okay? So, Jesus, he fulfills the feast of unleavened bread and that he was sinless. As I mentioned, leaven, it represents sin and death. And Jesus said in John chapter 6, I'm the bread of life. Where the leavened bread was the bread of death, the unleavened bread is the bread of life. Jesus is the unleavened bread. But the unleavened bread is also referred to as the bread of affliction or the bread of humility. Let me show you something in Isaiah chapter 53. The bread of affliction or the bread of humility. In Isaiah chapter 53, one of the chapters in the Bible that many rabbis steer clear from. We see why. 
in verse 4, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was buried, bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was afflicted. He was bruised. He was broken. Why? So that we could have life and have life eternal. We also see in Acts chapter 2, this powerful message by Peter at Pentecost. We'll get into Pentecost here in a moment. But as we mentioned, unleavened, in other words, means sinlessness. Okay, He was the sinless one. Peter, he makes this connection in verse 27 of Acts chapter 2. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. What he's saying is David wrote that, but that wasn't David speaking. The Messiah was speaking through David. Okay, David's body definitely saw decay. It definitely saw corruption. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. The Lord, he's the unleavened bread. He's the sinless one. And because he's the sinless one, his body never saw corruption. It never saw decay. And then he makes the reference to the resurrection. He is the unleavened bread. He is the sinless one. He's the fulfillment of the Ophicomen. He was buried, but his body didn't see corruption because he was buried a sinless man. Now, even when you look at matzah bread, this is interesting. If you ever look at it, next week we have communion, so you'll see this. Matzah bread, because of how it's baked without the leaven, it has stripes and holes in it. Okay, It has these marks and holes in it. Jesus was pierced and he was striped. Even the matzah bread that we see today is a picture of Jesus Christ. He is the unleavened bread. Now the spiritual application, 1 Corinthians, I need to get this fixed. Got pages falling out. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We mentioned a portion of this. It says in verse 6, 1 Corinthians 5, 6, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Or in other words, sin spreads is what he's saying. Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover was sacrificed for us. He makes the connection between unleavened bread and the Passover. Why? Because Passover marked the beginning of the feast of unleavened bread. Verse 8, therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and heart. What he's referring to spiritually is sanctification, the process by which we're made holy. Put the sin away. Put the, put, put, put the leaven away. Don't let the leaven into your life. It's just going to spread. It's going to cause big problems. Pursue the Lord in sincerity and truth. Do your best to, to be like him and unleavened and, and sinless. Jesus is the fulfillment of unleavened bread. In Leviticus chapter 23, we see the feast of first fruits. That's the next one. Okay? The feast of first fruits. Now, if you look at, if you want to read this on your own, I'm not going to read all of them. Uh, the feast of uh, all these feasts, 
um, are summarized in Leviticus chapter 23. From verses 1 to 44, you see the summary of these feasts. We have to pull different scriptures to understand what was happening and even tradition and culture and all those things to understand how Jesus really fulfills these things. But those are, uh, those are summaries. Leviticus 23 is a summary of these feasts. Now, the Feast of First Fruits, it signifies the beginning of the barley grain harvest, okay? It signifies the beginning of the barley grain harvest. Now, what this goes back to in Exodus is the parting of the Red Sea, okay? Passover happened, then they left, they left the leaven behind, and then we see just after that, God parts the Red Sea. And what happened when God parted the Red Sea? This is why they celebrate this. When God parted the Red Sea, the people walked on dry ground, it says they got to the other side, but who was chasing them? Pharaoh and all his soldiers. And as they tried to cross the Red Sea, what happened? God washed them away. He washed the sin away. It's a picture of baptism. Though the people were able to walk in the newness of life, the sin, the people that represent the sin, they were washed away. They were washed clean. Now, this will make more sense as we get into it a little bit more. So this was on the 16th day of Nisan, okay? 14th day was the Feast of Passover. Mark in the beginning, 15th day, Feast of Unleavened Bread. The 16th day was the Feast of Firstfruits. Let me show you something. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This whole chapter leading up to this point, Paul is arguing a philosophical case for the resurrection. He's using logic and reasoning so that people understand that they can believe in the resurrection. Context is resurrection. Look at verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. Paul makes the connection that Jesus is the first fruits. Celebrating on first fruits, Jesus rose the 16th day of Nisan. That would have been a Sunday. That's why we celebrate Resurrection Sunday. He literally rose on that Sunday, fulfilling the feast of first fruits. Remember, as I mentioned, the parting of the Red Sea, uh, the enemy, the, the sin, the evil was washed away and the people were able to walk in the newness of life. And that's really the picture of baptism, what it's all about. We talked about this last week, but if you weren't here uh, when we did our baptism, I want to show you real quick Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. <clears throat> Paul says, in verse 3, or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. Baptism, what it spiritually represents as your body is submerged under the water, because that's what the word actually means to be submerged or immersed, when you're submerged under the water, it represents the death of the old man, the, the death of the old woman, the death of whoever, whoever. And then as you're raised out of the water, it's symbolic of the resurrection. I'm walking in the power of the resurrection. I'm walking in the newness of life. The old man's dead. He's gone. He's not coming back. Put off the old man. Put on the new. This is the symbol of 
of, of baptism. The, the resurrection is symbolic of walking in the newness of life. Jesus is the first fruits. He rose on the feast of first fruits, okay? Then we have Pentecost. It's the last one we'll do. Pentecost, also referred to the Feast of Weeks, because it was seven weeks after uh, first fruits, okay? Seven weeks in a day. So it was 50 days. That's why Penta, uh, Pentecost is referring to the 50 days or Feast of Weeks. Now, this marked the beginning of the wheat harvest, it also marked the beginning of the summer. Okay, this was the last spring feast. After this feast, marked the beginning of summertime. Okay, which is kind of significant later. Now, historically, what they were celebrating at the Feast of Pentecost is when Moses received the law, when he received the Ten Commandments from God on Mount Sinai. Let me show you. In Exodus chapter 19... Exodus chapter 19, verse 1, it says, In the third month, after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day, they came to the wilderness. They left in the first month, they got to Mount Sinai in the third month. So about 50 days after the parting of the Red Sea came the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. Now, when you look at Exodus chapter 19 and 20, that's when God gives the Ten Commandments in, uh, to Moses. We know that he wrote them with his finger, but he also spoke them. It says that he spoke them uh, as the trumpet of God. It literally sounded like a trumpet. This is interesting. Rabbis to this day, not Messianic rabbis, rabbis even, to this day, they teach that when God spoke the Ten Commandments, he spoke it in 70 languages all at once. Synonymously, he spoke all, he spoke the Ten Commandments in 70 languages. Why? Because this law wasn't just for the Jew, it was for all mankind. And when you look at seven in the Bible, it's the number of completion or perfection. What he's trying to get across here, or what the rabbis are trying to get across, is God spoke the Ten Commandments in all the tongues of men, all the languages of men. Because the law was for all man. Look what happens in Acts chapter 2. Jesus, after he rose from the dead, he talks with his disciples. He's hanging with his disciples, right, for like 40 days. Then he says, I'm going to send you the Spirit. He leaves. And when does he send the Spirit? He sends the Spirit on Pentecost. Look, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. It says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, hold your place in Acts chapter 2. We see... Pentecost, originally, it was celebrating the birth of Judaism. Why? But because before that time period, they didn't have direction specifically from God. Yes, we have the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but they didn't have a law to go by. Literally, Pentecost, it represents the birth of the Jewish religion, of Judaism. Now we see in Acts chapter 2, not the birth of Judaism, but the birth of church this was when the church was birthed because of the holy spirit now the disciples are able to do what jesus asked them to do hold your place look at acts chapter 2 verse 41 it says 
Then those who gladly received his word, this is Pentecost, were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. So during Pentecost, 3,000 souls were saved. Look at what happens. If you don't get there in time, that's fine. Exodus chapter 32. In Exodus chapter 32, this is the same context of Pentecost. This is Moses receiving the law of God. And what happened after he received the law of God, when he came back down the mountain, what did he find? The people worshiping a golden calf, right? They were worshiping an idol. God's like, we're not having this. So Moses, he gets together the Levites. They volunteer to slaughter people. Look what happens. Exodus chapter 32, verse 28. So the sons of Levi did according to the words of Moses, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. 3,000 people die in the old Pentecost. 3,000 people are born eternally in the new Pentecost. Why is this? Well, in Romans chapter 7, in Romans chapter 7, if you can still hold your place in Acts chapter 2, that would be good. We'll be back there in a second. Romans chapter 7 Verse 4, it says, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law. The law brought sin. The law brought death. The law revealed to us our sinful, sinful nature. But Jesus, when he came, when he rose, he says, we're under a new law. He goes on to say in verse 4, Through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. We're no longer under the law of Moses. We're under the law of love. The law of Moses brought death. 3,000 people die when the, when the laws received. Now, under Jesus, sending the Holy Spirit, 3,000 people live and live eternally. We also see in Exodus chapter 19, this whole section is uh, Moses on top of Mount Sinai receiving direction from the Lord. If you're wondering why there's many, so many chapters, he's given them a lot of direction about Aaron and the tabernacle and all these different things. Same context. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 18, it says, Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. So God came upon Mount Sinai with fire. Look what it says in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, verse 3, it says, there, then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. Whereas God came upon Mount Sinai with fire, giving the law, now we see the Holy Spirit come upon the individuals, this, the tongues as of fire. And again, just as the rabbis taught that they would communicate uh, that God communicated uh, the law in all 70 known languages at that time. Now we see these people are able to communicate with the tongues of men. And there's people going, how are they speaking in my language? Because it was for all men. Spiritually, <clears throat> this represents the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is the spiritual application. At Pentecost, the church was baptized with the Holy Spirit. They were empowered from on high to accomplish the work of the ministry. If you look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's the purpose of the power, to give us the ability to bear witness unto Christ, both with our lips and the way we live our lives. Pentecost representing the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, between the first four feasts, so we have Passover, I'll review this next time, unleavened bread, first fruits, fall within three days of each other, 
And then, seven weeks plus a day later, you have Pentecost. Jesus fulfilled all those feasts on the precise days that they were celebrated. Now, between the spring feast and the fall feast, you have about four months, okay? About four months of time that went by. And traditionally, this four-month time period was a period of harvest. The, liter- the people were taking the time, working on their farms, harvesting the grain and the barley and the wheat, everything that got produced from the year before. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 37 In Matthew 9, verse 37, Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. See, between the birth of the church and the Lord's second coming, it's a harvest period. We're literally in a harvest period. That's our job. That's our obligation to harvest souls, to tell people about Jesus. That's why he gave us the spirit so that we'll bear witness of him. For them, it was four months. We don't know how long it's going to be for us. But the point is, The Lord wants us to preach the gospel in this time period. We see in Romans chapter 11, verse 25, this is where I'll close. Romans 11, verse 25, we see this reference to the fullness of the Gentiles. And I mentioned this before. Uh, Many believe that that's the indicator of when the rapture is going to happen. When that last Gentile gets saved, when the harvest is done, all the harvesting of souls, it's done until the tribulation. And there'll be more souls uh, that are saved during that. I mentioned that in the past. But the reason I'm saying this and the reason I wanted to teach on the feasts is really so that we can see God's overarching plan and how he's fulfilled precisely the feast that he instituted in the spring. The thought is if you fulfilled those feasts exactly how he said, celebrating tradition, fulfilling tradition, then he's likely going to fulfill the fall feast and likely on the same days that, that he did it. Now, Rosh Hashanah this year, we'll talk about it next week, it's this Wednesday. Uh, it's Wednesday the 20th, and Rosh Hashanah, it, it's literally the Feast of Trumpets, okay? In 1 Thessalonians four sixteen and 17, we see a reference to the rapture. God's going to sound the trumpet of God, and, and those who are believers in Christ are going to rise, okay? They're going to meet the Lord in the air, it says. And those that are left... Well, sometime after that, the tribulation is going to start and, and, and it's not going to be easy. The reason I wanted to mention this is because we're in the midst of some of these fall feasts. And when you look at what's happening in the world, we would be fools not to think, what if, right? Now, no one knows the day, no one knows the time, no, no one knows the hour. But the interesting thing about these feasts is Rosh Hashanah, it's a two-day feast. Okay, It starts at sundown on Wednesday, uh, and then it ends just before sundown on Friday. So between Wednesday and Friday, you never know. I'm not saying the Lord's going to come back this year and yada, yada, yada. I'd be a fool to say that. But when you look at scripture and how detailed God is with his plan and how he fulfilled the uh, spring feast to a T, he's likely going to come back to fulfill the fall feast. And we'll talk about the fall feast and you'll look at this and what the people do. And like, if you haven't learned this before, it's like, oh my gosh, this is so obvious. This all points to the second coming of Christ. Now, In light of that, a few things, just as we've been talking about. 
God gives us the, 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 the different parables as he's speaking of the end times of being a, a wise and faithful servant, servant versus being a, a lazy and wicked servant. And we see what happened to one versus what happened to the other. The point that the Lord's been trying to get across to all of us is to be watchful and ready. And he says that all the time. Be ready. Act like it can come any moment. And the reason I'm sharing this with you because I truly believe it could. And it might happen thousands of years from now. I have no idea. But when you look at God's plan and how perfect it is, it could happen sooner than you think. In the midst of that, come to the barbecue on Wednesday. <laughs> Bring a friend. <laughs> Hopefully someone gets saved. <laughs> Maybe you'll share the gospel. Maybe it'll be our church, right? That last person gets saved on Rosh Hashanah on Wednesday, and boom, we're all gone. Hopefully all of us, right? We don't know. It could happen. But the point is to be watchful, to be ready, not just for ourselves, but by sharing the gospel, tell people about Jesus. Literally, the time could be too late. They might not get the opportunity, and God could have prepared a work for you to share the gospel with that specific person. So Wednesday night, if you're going to come, invite people, and I'm dead serious. Like, this really could happen. We don't know, but it could happen. We don't know the day or the hour, because there's a few days likely that will happen in uh, one of the days. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the plan, how, how specific and detailed you are. Jesus, we thank you for giving us so much confidence because you fulfilled all those feasts in the spring. Lord, we can have a, a confident expectation that you're going to fulfill the fall feast as well, Lord. And, and I just pray that you would, um, you would give us minds that, that, that don't just laugh this off or uh, think it not as serious as it is, because when you speak about the end times, as we've been discussing the last few weeks, you're dead serious, Lord, and you're warning the disciples just as you're warning us to be ready. Don't get caught off guard. Don't get caught on our heels, Lord, so that I pray that we would be ready, that you would find faith here, that when you come back, you would find faith in each and every person that's a part of this church, Lord. And if there's questions about that with anyone, I pray that you would give them the humility to, to speak up and, and, and ask if they're questioning their salvation or anything like that, Lord, that, that you would secure them in their salvation, that their relationship with you uh, would be better now than it ever has been, Lord, and you would use their relationship to inspire other people to have relationships, that people would see Christ in us, the hope of glory. Lord, we, we eagerly wait for your coming, God. And again, we pray that you would find faith in each of our lives. In your name, amen.